Well, good morning, everyone. I'm so glad you're here with us as we wrap up our Everything is Meaningless sermon series, which has all really been about exploring this book of Ecclesiastes, a book you might not have been that familiar with, a book that is really unique, a book that has its own kind of tone and style, and it's a really important book, and it's also a really challenging book. So we've seen how Kohelet, the writer, how he has told us how everything is like Havel, right? That there's so much meaninglessness to life. That what we chase after is so often just ending up as vapor, mist, smoke, or it's futile. We've also seen then how for Kohelet, that time is about seasons, not about sameness. And we've been uh, invited to enter into the season that we're a part of. And then last week, Kohelet gave us really three different steps that we could take to live in this world that is difficult and full of Havel and is full of different changing seasons where we learned about acceptance and responsibility and eating and drinking and being merry. And today, today to wrap up our series, I want to take a look at Kohelet's view of God, life, and the afterlife. That's what I want to take a look at. I want to take a look at Kohelet's view of God, life, and the afterlife. I want to give you a little bit of almost fair warning as we kind of begin that Kohelet's view with this, it might challenge you a little bit. It might disturb you a little bit. It might even uh, kind of uh, cause you to want to push back at him a little bit. But I think that this matters for us to actually explore and to take what Kohelet is teaching seriously and to wrestle with it, which really is the entire point. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to Ecclesiastes. We're going to be jumping in today and really exploring then Kohelet's view of God, Kohelet's view of life, and Kohelet's view of the afterlife. And to begin with, I want to begin with one statement that actually I want you to kind of hold on to throughout this entire sermon. It's one statement that really will anchor and will come back up, so I don't want you to forget it. And here's the statement. It is simple and it is clear, but I think it really does matter. And here's the statement. That where you begin shapes where you end up. That where you begin shapes where you end up. And that especially then, when it comes to our view or relationship with God, or even lack thereof, okay, where you begin with this actually shapes where you end up. So to give you an idea, that if you begin your journey or relationship with God with your own personal thoughts or observations, that will shape where you end up. If you begin your journey with God with maybe what you grew up knowing in the church, or what you know, a teacher told you, or a professor told you, or with what Christ has revealed... All of these different starting points, right? All these different starting places will radically shape and alter where you end up. That where you begin actually shapes the trajectory of where you end. And I want to begin with this idea in this context because I want to take a look at where does Kohelet ground his thought, actually? Where is his starting place? Where is he coming from? Where is his kind of home base? Because Kohelet actually is really clear that he wants to teach us all that he is actually sharing with us He's really clear on what it is that is his starting point and his beginning. And I want to read to you uh, just his kind of beginning in the starting point. And we find it in chapter 1, verse 12, and then actually throughout the book of Ecclesiastes as well. We read this. He says, I, the teacher, was king of Israel, and I lived in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. Listen to what he says. Here we're getting an understanding into Kohelet's starting point. And this matters because it shapes where you end. Right? He says this. I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything done under heaven. And so here, here Kohelet names his starting point. And what is it? It's his own personal experience, right? That's his starting point. That he's going to make his effort to go and to search and to actually observe all of life. He's going to investigate that for Kohelet, his starting point is his own personal observation, investigation, and exploration. 
That's his starting point. He's going to explore everything he can under heaven. Everything that is available to him, he's going to explore. Whereas he says, I devoted myself to search for understanding and to explore by wisdom everything being done under heaven. And this idea of Kohelet's starting point being his own personal exploration, we actually see this throughout the entire book of Ecclesiastes. He just keeps coming back to this again and again and again. He says this, I also thought about the human condition, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 18. Or then he says this in Ecclesiastes 4, Then I observed that most people are motivated to success because uh, they envy their neighbors. And then we read this in Ecclesiastes 7, This is my conclusion, says the teacher. I discovered this after looking at the matter from every possible angle. Or Ecclesiastes 8, he says, I've thought deeply about all that goes on here under the sun. Or Ecclesiastes 9, he talks about this. He says, this too I carefully explored. So when we're reading in Ecclesiastes, really, these are Kohelet's like personal investigations, observations, thoughts, conclusions. This is his personal experience and exploration. That's what he's saying. Right? That I'm going to take all this time and effort. I'm going to go and think about these things. I'm going to go and experience these things, and I'm going to share them with you. That's the context of Kohelet's teaching. This is what grounds him. And so then when it comes to his teaching on God, this also grounds him. And so now I want to take a look at Kohelet's views on God. And Kohelet's views on God, there are kind of different portions to it. But I think if you start to read the book of Ecclesiastes through, you'll start to see that really at the base of Kohelet's view of God, there really is something that might actually surprise you, that the base of Kohelet's view of God, there's actually fear. I think fear is a real theme in Kohelet's view and his relationship and his connection with God, that fear is a really big and dominant part of his understanding of God. Let me read to you where he talks about God actually quite significantly in chapter 5. Okay, we read this. And as you enter the house of God, keep your ears open and your mouth shut. This is his this is his advice, right? So if you're going into the temple of God, if you're going in to encounter God, like just keep your ears open and your mouth shut. He says this, it is evil to make mindless offerings to God. He says this, don't make rash promises and don't be hasty in bringing matters uh, before God. Like don't just kind of talk to him. Have a little bit of distance. That's what he's actually encouraging here. He says, after all, God is in heaven and you are here on earth, so let your words be few. And now nothing like against, I think it was Matt Redman who sang the song, I'll let my words be few. But here when Kohelet is actually encouraging us to keep our words few, it is not because we are overwhelmed by the majesty, the goodness, and the glory and the holiness of God. That is not his point at all. Kohelet is advising us to keep our words few because God does not suffer fools lightly. Because actually we should be fearful. Because actually God just might wipe out what you have accomplished and what you have done. And I'm not reading into this, actually, because let's just continue where he makes it explicitly clear why we should keep our words few. Listen to what he says. He says, when you make a promise to God, these are just the next verses, don't delay in following through it, for God takes no pleasure in fools. He says this, keep all the promises you make to him. It is better to say nothing than to make a promise and to not keep it. He says, don't let your mouth make you sin and don't defend yourself by telling the temple messenger that the promise you made was a mistake. Listen to this. Listen to how Kohelet talks about God. He says that would make God angry and he might wipe out everything you have achieved. And he might wipe out everything you have achieved. And this is why I kind of shared that I think for Kohelet, there really is fear as a part of his relationship with God, that this is a real dominant theme within it. And in fact, he comes right out and says that this is what we should expect with God, that we should fear him. 
He says this multiple places in Ecclesiastes. I'll just give you a few examples. And that while Kohelet does believe that good comes from God, he does mention that, right? We learned that last week, that if there's food before us, this is a gift of God. He also, though, believes that everything bad also finds its source in God. So therefore, fear is the appropriate response. Listen to what he says. He says, enjoy prosperity while you can, but when hard times strike, realize that both come from God. Remember, there is nothing certain in this life. Or he also says this. He says, talk is cheap, like daydreams and other useless activities. This is his advice. Fear God instead. Or in Ecclesiastes 9, he says this. "Um, And I know that whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added to it or taken from it. God's purpose is that people should fear him. God's purpose is that people should fear him. This is Kohelet's view, right? This is what he's sharing with us. Or listen to this verse. He says this, This too I carefully explored. Even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, he says this, No one knows whether God will show them favor. No one knows whether God will show them favor. There is no assurance for Kohelet with how God might treat you. No one knows if God will show them favor. This is why then for Kohelet, based on his own, remember, observations, investigations, experience, He advises that the right move then is to fear God, that we should treat him with fear because things are uncertain. And this idea of both kind of fear and uncertainty then continues to shape Kohelet's views on life as well. Because what Kohelet will teach us is that when it comes to life, that it is both simultaneously two things. Life is both simultaneously random and predetermined. These seem to be the things that Kohelet is teaching us, that life is both random and predetermined. Let me show you. So um, So we read this. I have, observed under, uh, I have observed something else under the sun. The fastest runner doesn't always win the race. The strongest warrior doesn't always win the battle. The wise sometimes go hungry, and the skillful are not necessarily wealthy. He says this, all those who are educated don't always lead successful lives. And then here he kind of wraps it all up with why. He says this, it was all decided by chance, by being in the right place at the right time. Right? This is Kohelet's view of life. It's chance, it's random, right? That it's all decided by chance. But then he also talks about everything also being predetermined and already decided. This is really clear in uh, chapter six. He says this, everything has already been decided. Like it couldn't be clearer than that. There is also chance, but then everything has been decided. He says this, it was known long ago what each person would be. So there's no use arguing with God about your destiny. The more words you speak, the less they mean. That's what he says. So what good are they? In the few days of our meaningless lives, who knows how our days can best be spent? Our lives are like a shadow. Who can tell what will happen on this earth after we are gone? So what we've seen in Kohelet's views when it comes to God is that there is fear and uncertainty. And that same kind of idea continues in his approach to life. There's both fear and uncertainty there too. Because there's both predetermination and random chance. And then this idea that Kohelet is quite, I think we could put it this way if we were to be honest. He's quite skeptical about a lot. He actually then takes this skepticism and he applies it to to the afterlife. That for Kohelet, what he would like to teach us is that he's not sure, actually, that there is anything more to come. He's not sure that there is anything more to come. Now, what you might not realize is that the idea of the afterlife, of there being a heaven and a hell, that this actually isn't all that present in the Old Testament. This was an idea that was being developed, actually. And so we don't see this kind of full-fledged idea of there being a heaven and a hell and an afterlife until the New Testament, until today. Actually, we have this idea, but people in Kohelet's day and age didn't really have this idea. And so Kohelet actually is quite skeptical, actually, of there being anything in the future for us to hope to. Because remember, remember, in his entire context, you know, where you begin shapes where you end up. 
Right? And his beginning point is what you can observe. Right? So this is what he teaches us about the afterlife. He says this, I also thought about the human condition, how God proves to people that they are like animals. He says, for people and animals share the same fate. Both breathe and both must die. So people have no real advantage over the animals. Like, we're the same. He says, how meaningless, how havel. He says this, both go to the same place. They came from dust and they returned to dust. For who can prove that the human spirit goes up and that the spirits of animals go down to the earth? So he says this, so I saw that there is nothing better for people than to be happy in their work. This is our lot in life. And no one can bring us back to see what happens after we die. This is Kohala's view on kind of the afterlife and what is to come. Or we read this in Ecclesiastes 9. He says, this too I carefully explored. Even though the actions of godly and wise people are in God's hands, no one knows whether God will show them favor. The same destiny ultimately awaits everyone, whether righteous or wicked, good or bad, ceremonially clean or unclean, religious or irreligious. Good people receive the same treatment as sinners. And people who make promises to God are treated like people who don't. It seems so wrong that everyone under the sun suffers the same fate. He's like, this seems like Havel. This seems unfair. This is what he's saying. He says, already twisted by evil, people choose their own mad course for they have no hope. There is nothing ahead but death anyway. This is his point of view. There's nothing ahead but death anyway. There is hope only for the living. As they say, it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. The living at least know they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered. Whatever they did in their lifetime, loving, hating, envying, it is all gone. They no longer play a part in anything here on earth. This is Kohelet's view of the afterlife. He's actually quite skeptical that there is anything to hope for in the future. This is why he says things like this. So people have no real advantage over the animals. How meaningless. Both go to the same place. Or they came uh, from the dust, they returned to the dust. Or he also says this, that at least the living know they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, nor are they remembered. Kohelet is actually quite skeptical of the afterlife. And even the most popular verse in Ecclesiastes that talks about eternity, we actually have kind of misread it. This is the most popular verse in, uh, in Ecclesiastes. It says, yet God has made everything beautiful in its own time, and he has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. But here when Kohelet is talking about eternity, it's not that this is something we will necessarily inherit. What it is, what he's talking about here, it's really clear that if there is eternity, it's so beyond us, we can't even grasp it. And when Kohelet seems to talk about God, life, and the afterlife, what there is, there's a lot of skepticism in it. This is why if you read the book, and I encourage you to read the book, if you read the book out of the challenge on the first week, you might have thought to yourself, I'm not so sure about this. Because Kohelet actually puts forward some views that are actually quite challenging, right? That when it comes to God, what he really wants to share with us is that we should fear him. Right? This is kind of his grounding idea. That when it comes to life, he wants to say that, yes, it is both random and predetermined. And when it comes to the afterlife, he's quite skeptical at best about there being anything for us to hope for. So the question then is, is that if we are paying attention to what Kohelet is teaching, if we're paying attention to what the Bible is saying, the question is, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? What do we do with this? As I've shared here many times before, we tend to plan our sermon uh, series actually quite far in advance. We do this for a number of reasons. That one, it gives time for me to like discern and to prep and to study and especially to practice any challenge that we preach. 
But what we haven't actually often said here is that when it comes to sermon series and planning and all of that, actually, this isn't just me sitting in a room and deciding. We actually have a team of people that come together, and we actually invite all the staff to come forward too. And what we do is we think and we pray and we discern about what is it that God might be wanting to lead our people in? What is it that God might be saying to our people? What is it that we as a church need to hear from God? And so we discern this. And so we were at one of these meetings, and I can remember G, our communications director, she said, I really believe that we should do a study on the book of Ecclesiastes. This is kind of where this whole thing began. She said, I really believe that we should do a book study on Ecclesiastes. And for me, as soon as I heard that, I really did feel God kind of nudging me that this was the right way to go. That's often how God leads me in my own personal life, through nudges, hints, gestures, kind of convictions. And so we as a team, we prayed about it, we thought about it, and we discerned over it, and we said, yeah, this is a good idea. And I got to tell you, when we chose to preach the book of Ecclesiastes, I was incredibly excited. I thought, this is going to be great. I'd read Ecclesiastes a number of times, obviously. I'd read it, you know, um, but it had been a while. And I was really excited about it because I thought Ecclesiastes is a book not many people know. I love doing that kind of thing. It's also a book that I thought, you know, could help us to deal with some of the meaninglessness of life. I thought, like, that'll be a theme. And with COVID and all that's going on, this could be a really good thing for us. So what I did is what I always do whenever we're doing, you know, especially a book study. What I did was I sat down and I just read the book of Ecclesiastes straight through multiple times. I read it in different places. I read it in different translations. I read it again and again and again. And you want to know what I thought after I had sat with it for a very long time, reading it again and again and again? Do you want to know what I thought? That's what I thought. I thought this book cannot be preached. That's what I thought. That was my conclusion. I was like, this book can't be preached. I started to like hear some of the things that Kohelet was saying. I'm like, it's so negative. He is so depressing. And I'm not totally sure. I want to live in the world that Kohelet is talking about, right? Some of those things that we just read. You might also have felt a little bit disturbed or challenged. I thought to myself, like, I can't preach this book. I'm like, what do you do with a teacher who says things like this, that I soon discovered that God has dealt a tragic existence to the human race? What do you do with this? Or this verse, where what is wrong cannot be made right, what is missing cannot be recovered. Or that verse on the afterlife, how do you, how do you do, deal with this? How do you preach this? Where he says, for people and animals share the same fate, both breathe and both must die. So people have no real advantage over the animals. How meaningless, both go to the same place. They came from dust and they returned to dust. I gotta tell you, I struggled with this book. And if you're around me at all over the summer, actually, when I was really kind of wrestling and going through this book, all I would do is talk with people about how I couldn't make sense of Ecclesiastes. I would talk to them and I'd be like, I just don't get it. And I would wrestle with it and I would struggle with it and I would keep reading it and I would argue with Kohelet in my mind all the time. I was like, what do you do with this book? And then I thought, well, we should read commentaries. Commentaries are when other scholars, teachers, pastors, what they do is they write their thoughts about scripture. And it can often be very helpful to understand some of the other contexts, that sort of thing, to gain a deeper understanding of it. And I thought, you know what, if I read some commentaries, then maybe Ecclesiastes will make sense. But do you want to know what happened? I discovered that all these commentaries were, do you want to know what I thought they were? They were all Havel. They were like meaningless. They were not helpful at all. Because so many commentaries, and one of them, I actually got so disgusted, I threw out a book, which for me is like, like that's, a that's a big deal. Like I have never done that before. But I was so frustrated with this book because what they did was they would talk about some of the Kohelet's views, but they'd be like, yeah, and they bring in like Proverbs or the Apostle John or another verse to counteract what Kohelet was saying to actually take away some of the barb of it, some of the difficulty of it, to actually kind of skip past what Kohelet was, was, was saying. 
And I just don't think that you can do this. I don't believe that at all. I believe that when it comes to the Bible, follow with me, I believe that the Bible is authoritative, it is inspired, and that we need to submit to it, which means you can't change it, alter it, or deny it. But then I was left with, what do you do with it? What do you do with those verses that we just read? What do you do with some of his view of fear that seems to ground it? What do you do with his view of life that is random and predetermined? What do you do with this book? I was left wrestling with it again and again and again. And all I did was talk to people about how much I was struggling with this book. And then finally, finally it hit me actually. After like sitting with this book for months, reading it again and again on repeat, having arguments with Kohelet in my head, and sometimes out loud with Chris in the room, like consistently, it finally hit me. I was like, oh, that's the point of this book. That's the point of this book. You might be like, what's the point? The point of this book is to cause you to wrestle with your view of God, life, and the afterlife with everything. That's the point of this book. This book is meant to disturb you. This book is meant to challenge you. This book is meant to actually cause you to wrestle with what Kohelet is saying and invite you to think through, well, what is it that you believe? What is it that you believe? What is your conclusions? What are your thoughts? What Kohelet is doing here is he is telling us he has spent the time, he has spent the energy actually going into exploring what he believes. And what Ecclesiastes invites us to do is to really question ourselves and what do we believe? And once I started to realize this, after I had wrestled it, you know, with this book for months, which is really the entire point of the book, I realized that this is actually quite clear in it. I want to read to you the very ending of Ecclesiastes, okay? Because this idea that we're actually meant to wrestle, that Ecclesiastes is meant to help us to think through things, to be challenged, to actually to grow, that this is the point of the book, it's actually in the end of Ecclesiastes. I want to read it to you, okay? And we begin actually hearing from Kohelet. He gives us his summary and his conclusion, but then if you remember... Right? The very back of the very first sermon, I said there isn't one writer but two. Right? There's both Kohelet and there's an editor as well. And so then we're going to hear the editor's words. So we read this. This is Kohelet. He's giving us his final thing. He says, everything is meaningless, says the teacher. Completely meaningless. It's all Havel. At least Kohelet is incredibly consistent. Right? At least it's consistent. And then the editor actually starts to speak. Right? He says, keep this in mind. He says, keep this in mind. He wants in some ways, follow with me, he's not totally sure on everything Kohelet has said actually. The editor is quite a little bit wary on some of this. So he says, oh, keep this in mind then. The teacher was considered wise, and he taught the people everything he knew. Remember what I said at the beginning? Where you start shapes where you end up. And so the teacher here, Kohelet, he is teaching us what he has known, what he has observed, what he has experienced. He said he listened carefully to many proverbs, studying and classifying them. And the teacher sought just the right words to express the truth clearly. That what the teacher is doing, what Kohelet is doing, is sharing with us his views. But then the editor, as I said, he's actually a little bit skeptical of all of this. And you can see this in the very next verse. He's a little bit wary, because listen to what he says. He says, the words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. They're meant to disturb us, actually, to challenge us. That's what he says. Their collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep. They're meant to prod us forward. But then listen to this. You can hear some of his wariness or skepticism with skeptical Kohelet, actually. He says this, but my child, let me give you some further advice. Be careful, okay? Like, be careful. Be a little bit wary, for writing books is endless and much study wears you out. Do you hear some of his own wariness even with what Kohelet has been teaching? So then what the editor does is he's like, okay, we've heard from Kohelet who says everything is meaningless. Now the editor wants to give us his spin on things, his take on things, his conclusion. He actually comes right out with it. In the very next verse, he says, that's the whole story. Now here is my final conclusion, 
right? So we've heard Kohelet's. Now he says, here is my final conclusion. He says this, what we should do is to fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. He says, God will judge us for everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. And that's how the book ends. The book ends with the editor giving us his thoughts, his conclusions, his summaries, that essentially what we read in Ecclesiastes is Kohelet's conclusion, everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. And then we read the editor's conclusion, fear God and obey his commands, this is everyone's duty. But I think the missing piece that I realized was, what Ecclesiastes is pushing us towards isn't for us just to understand Kohelet's view or the editor's view. What Ecclesiastes is really challenging us to do is to think through what is your view? What is your summary? What are your conclusions? How are you going to live? That Kohelet has thought about this, the editor has thought about this, both of them share what they think. The question is, is what do you believe? That what I think this book is meant to do, it is meant to cause us to wrestle with what we believe so that we can come to conclusions, so that we can come to know and be sure of what we believe. This book is meant to be, like the editor says, a cattle prod that pushes us in the right direction, that disturbs us enough to think, to wrestle, to question, and ultimately to come to some conclusions. So what's my main point today? My main point actually is really simple. It's about the entire book of Ecclesiastes. My main point is just this, that Ecclesiastes is an invitation and a challenge to wrestle with what we believe. That's what I think Ecclesiastes is about. That Ecclesiastes is both an invitation and a challenge for us to wrestle with what we believe. This is why, as I was reading some of those verses, as I was kind of working through this, or even I personally discovered, this is why at times you might have been a bit confused, challenged, maybe even disturbed a little bit, but that's actually the point of the book. It's meant to do that for us. Remember, what does the editor say? The words of the wise, like the words of Kohelet, right? They are meant to be like cattle prods, painful, but helpful. They are meant to be jarring, but to move us forward. The collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep. They're meant to be these things that push us forward. And so Kohelet's words are meant to disturb us and to challenge us a little bit. That's what Ecclesiastes is about. It is actually about us learning to wrestle with some of the big questions of life. And so today, today, and this might disappoint you and I know, but welcome to church and welcome to everything is meaningless, okay? So today, I'm not going to wrap up this sermon or this series or Ecclesiastes into a nice little bow where everything makes all sense for us. Because actually, Kohelet doesn't do that. Instead, what Kohelet does is he spends time, effort, he studies, he goes into things, he actually works stuff out. And what he wants to invite us into, I really do believe, is for us to do the same thing. For us to spend the same time, energy, and effort wondering, wrestling, questioning, what is it that we believe? How are we going to live? And what is it that we are called to do? What Ecclesiastes is, it is like that cattle prod that is meant to move us forward in questioning, wrestling, by disturbing some things we may have assumed and inviting us to really think things through. So today... Today, what is my main point? It's that Ecclesiastes is meant to be an invitation and a challenge for us to wrestle with what we believe. And that's actually what I experienced as I read it and sat with it for months. It challenged me. It wrestled uh, with me. I wrestled with Kohelet. That's what it's meant to do. We read of Kohelet's views. We read of the editor's views. The question that is left unanswered that I think Kohelet wants us to answer is just this. What are your views? What do you believe? So for today, what does this mean for us practically? Well, today, I have a few questions, and I have a challenge, okay? And I first want to begin by just actually inviting you to think through that question. What is it that you believe? Like, seriously, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about life? What do you believe about what is to come in the afterlife? What is it that you believe? Do you believe that everything is random in life? 
Do you believe there are any purposes to things? Do you believe that we just kind of die and there's nothing else after it? Or do you believe that there is more to life? Do you believe there's more than that we can see? Or is the world a cold, dark place? What is it that you actually believe like deep down? Deep down, deep down. Do you believe God is to be feared? That we're to keep a distance from God? Do you believe that God is to be loved and embraced? Do you believe that God is capricious or merciful? What is it that you believe? And then how are we called to live? Should we live, as the editor says, to fear God and to obey his commandments, or do we do whatever we want? What is it that you actually believe deep down? What I think Kohelet is doing, what I think Ecclesiastes does, is it forces a question upon us. It invites us to reflect on what we believe about how we live, about what life is, and who God is. So today, today the first thing I want to invite you into is to actually reflect on those questions. What do you believe about God, life, and the afterlife? What do you actually believe? And this is why today I can't give you all of the answers because that's actually tying things up into a neat little bow. And what it does is it stops us from wrestling, which is exactly the point of Ecclesiastes. So what is it that you believe? What is it that you really, truly believe? And to help with this, though, I do want to remind us of one thing. Okay? I want to remind us of one thing that I mentioned right back at the beginning. Does anybody remember the statement that I said that you should hold on to? What I said at the beginning is where you begin shapes where you end. Okay? Where you begin shapes where you end. And so when it comes to this idea of wrestling with God, with life, with everything, I want to also remind us of why you might be arguing with Kohelet and why I did actually. Because what shouldn't shock anyone is Kohelet and I start in very different places when it comes to our relationship with God. When it comes to our understanding of God, when it comes to our understanding of life, actually, we start in very different places. That for Kohelet, he was very clear, right? His understanding of God, life, everything, it is grounded in his personal experience, exploration, investigation, and observation, right? That's what he consistently comes back to. This is grounded in what he has learned, right? And he's taking all of this together and he's sharing it with us. That's what he is doing. His grounding is actually in his personal investigation, experience, exploration, and observation, but my grounding when it comes to understanding who God, life, and the afterlife is, is very different. My grounding is not in that at all. My grounding is not in personal observation or experience. You want to know what my grounding is? My grounding is in the revelation and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is where I begin with my understanding of who God is, of what life is meant to be lived like, and how uh, we are called to live in this world that has so much Havel. We start in different places, Kohel and I. This is why, then, I think there is some, for me and him, why I spent so much time wrestling with him and arguing with him. Because as I said, where you begin does shape where you end. So as you wrestle through these questions today, I want to give you some time, actually, in just a moment, to actually wrestle through them. As you wrestle through these questions of what you actually believe deep down, who do you believe God is? How do you believe we're called to live? What I also want to invite you to consider, amidst all the various views, opinions, perspectives that are out there, we've heard Kohelet's and we've heard also the editors, what I want to invite you to consider as well is where you are beginning, where you are beginning. When it comes to your understanding of God, are you beginning like with Jesus and his revelation? Are you beginning with um, your personal experiences, philosophies, what a professor told you, whatever it may be, where are you beginning? And so today what I want to do is I want to invite you to reflect on those questions but then I want to be really clear and direct with this. I also want to challenge you to begin with Christ and to commit to Christ. 
That I think if we are ever going to truly learn to live in this world and to wrestle with the big questions of who is God, of how should we live, and what does the afterlife actually look like, that we need to begin with Christ and we need to commit to Christ. Because as I said, Christ for me is the grounding of everything. He is the lens I see everything through. He is the reason that I can say that I know life has purpose, that I know there is more to come, that I know no matter what happens, no matter how dark, unjust, and evil the world may seem, resurrection is true and justice is true and Christ is true. What grounds you? Who grounds you? Who shapes you for your views moving forward? What I want to invite you today to do is to do two things. I want to invite you, as I said, to really reflect on those questions of what do you believe? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about life? Is there purpose to it? Is there not? What do you believe about the afterlife? Is there something more to hope for that we are actually longing for that we will see and experience? What do you believe about all those things? We're going to give you time to wrestle through some of those questions here today. But then I also want to challenge you really directly. I want to challenge you to begin with Christ and to commit to Christ. And to help us with that, we're actually going to take time with communion together. We're going to take time to take a step forward with Christ. Because what I truly believe amidst all of the havel of life, the meaninglessness of it, amidst all the different seasons we may be in, amidst all the different steps that we may take of acceptance, of responsibility, of eating, drinking, and being merry, the most important one that there is is to begin with Christ and to stay committed to Christ. So that's what we're going to be doing. My challenge today is really simple. Would you wrestle with the questions and would you commit to Christ? And I know. I know this may not be where you thought this sermon series may go, where you may have thought this sermon would go, but that's what Ecclesiastes is all about. It doesn't go in places we expect. And what it invites us to do is to actually challenge us to wrestle with things and ultimately to think through what is it that we believe. And what I want to challenge you to do is to hold on to Christ in the midst of it. So with that, would you join with me in prayer here this morning? God, I pray. I pray that we have the courage to truly wrestle, Lord, with the things that are said in this book to wrestle with our own beliefs, to wrestle with our own convictions, to really see, God, what it is that we believe. And I pray, Lord, as we wrestle with things, might we begin with you. Might we begin with you, Jesus, and might we commit to you because you are truly the one who leads us and guides us and saves us and rescues us. So I pray, God, in the midst of the wrestling, might we never lose our grip on you or better, truthfully, more theologically put, might you never lose our grip on us. So might we continue to follow you. Might we continue to be faithful. But might we have the courage to wrestle and to commit to you. And I pray this all in the wonderful name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. And so to close our time together, we do want to give you time to do those two things. First, I want to invite you to spend the next few moments simply reflecting on what is it that you believe? What is it that you actually think is true about God, about life, and the afterlife? And then, in just a few moments, after that, we're going to take time to take communion together, to actually make a commitment to Christ, even amidst all of our questions, wrestlings, doubt, whatever it may be. I'm going to invite you to commit to him in the midst of it. So would you do that now? Take time to reflect, and then we'll take time to commit together.
now as we come to communion, I want to invite you to begin with Christ and to choose to commit to Christ. Even amidst some of the questions you may have, some of the wrestling that you may have, some of the doubts or all of that. Because even in the midst of it, Christ is true. And I want to invite you to take a step of faith to actually commit to him. So to begin, I want to begin by reading a traditional opening to communion. That this is the table, not of the church, but of Jesus Christ. It is made ready for those who love God and those who want to come. Uh, I guess I'll just restart now. And so now we want to come to communion. And I want to challenge you and invite you to begin with Christ and to commit with Christ. That even in the midst of any of the questions, the doubts, the uncertainties that still may be swirling within, I believe the right place for us is to take a step of faith by committing to Jesus. And so as we come to communion, I want to begin by reading a traditional opening to communion that this is the table, not of the church, but of Jesus Christ. It is made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come you who have much faith and you who have little. Come you who have been here often and you have not been here a long time or ever before. Come all of you who have tried to follow and all of us who have failed, because these are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come not because the church invites you, come because it is Christ who invites you to be known and to be fed here. And so, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, we read these words of how he began his time with communion with the disciples. We read this. That then Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he had thanked God for it, he broke it into pieces, and he gave it to the disciples, saying this, that this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us pray together. God, as we come towards communion and towards your body that was broken as a grateful gift for us, I pray, Lord, I pray would you speak to us. I pray, Lord, would you continue to center and ground us in you. I pray, God, would you be first in our lives in every way. And if there are things that are uh, broken within our lives, would you make them whole? If there are things that are fragile, would you strengthen them? I pray, God, in this moment, will we come to you with gratefulness, with thanks, with appreciation for your sacrifice, Lord, that truly has changed the world. And I just pray this all in the wonderful name of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. And then after supper, Jesus took another cup of wine and he said, this wine is a token of God's new covenant to save you, an agreement sealed with the blood that I will pour out for you. Again, let us come towards God in prayer. And so Jesus, today we are so grateful for your sacrifice that has freed us from all sin that has allowed us, Lord, to come and to be made whole and cleansed and pure and new. And so today, God, I pray, might we have just a deep level of thanks and gratitude for your gift. But might we also echo that and meet that with also a choice and a commitment to follow you, to ground our lives in you, to actually be faithful to you and to all that you have done. And so, God, today we come to before you and we are grateful for our sins that have been cleansed, that have been changed, that we have been freed and liberated from because of your sacrifice. 
So might we follow you in freedom. Might we follow you in love. Might we follow you in faithfulness. We pray this all in your name. Amen.